0: Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pahn, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Cheryl Martin. Cheryl is an emergency physician who started out her training in Scotland before moving to Australia. She's also a pioneer in the space of physician well-being working as part of the well-being executive for ASIM and hosting her own fabulous podcast, The Mindful Medic. On top of all of this, she's currently completing her MBA. She's an avid trail runner and a certified yoga instructor. Hi, Dr. Cheryl Martin. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Very excited to have you on the show. I think
1: I'm more excited. At least it's, um least no, it's a real honor to be on a podcast that I've listened to for some time and I think a whole community and platform that I've followed For the five years, I think it was a couple of years since I had Amandeep on my podcast and there was 14,000 members of Creative Careers and Medicine then and it's 21,000 plus now and that doesn't surprise me. So I just, I'm a big fan.
0: Yeah, said like a true fan, you know the stats, it's impressive. (laughs) I could say the same thing back to you, I listened to your podcast so very excited to have you here, have this conversation with you. To start off with, I want to get a sense of all of the things that you 're currently doing, so I know you work clinically and then you do a few other like clinical roles that aren 't fully in the clinical space, and then you 've got a few whole other life outside of the clinical world as well. so tell me about all of them
1: oh, where do you start and um, so <laughs> I am an emergency physician that is a part time endeavor for me at the moment um, and it probably has been a part time endeavor since I became a consultant and I actually have left a a permanent position um, in Tasmania last year to undertake an MBA program, which is kind of boot camp style. And so I have residential blocks in Melbourne. So to do that, I have a couple of visiting medical officer roles. And I think we've just been discussing where else we can go to Locum. I think there's a lot of opportunities (laughs) around the country. And I really like seeing new places, um, particularly if I can uh, find some new trails um, and meet some new people. Um, I've worked in many different Types of hospitals um, now. And, you know, I, th- I think that's been the win. But I think the other thing at the moment is I've been choosing things that maybe are, you know, that, that are fit in when I've got some new cognitive challenges with the MBU, because I, I have found going back to be a beginner um, rather challenging. And as you see, I have an interest in particularly us, um, our clinician workforce. And it's allowed me some time to really invest more of my time and energy into work in that area through the college and through you know, a number of our colleagues that are doing this work around the two countries, Australia and New Zealand.
0: Amazing. And then you have your podcast as well. Do you want to talk about that briefly?
1: Yeah. So I think we're going to talk a bit about this at the conference. I've loved podcasting for a long time. Uh, I've really relied on that through a lot of my training for education, EMRAP, cases. And I, I listen on the run. Uh, I don't normally listen to music, but I find listening to podcasts and educational podcasts have been a good way to learn on the go. And I, I thought about starting a podcast for some time. And I think it was during the pandemic. I finally was like, look, I just got to let, you know, be good enough and not make this perfect. Uh, Dr. Andrew Davies, who's an intensive care consultant in Frankston now, uh, our paths had crossed at a kind of alternative lifestyle medicine conference. Uh, We had met briefly when we were at the Alfred. I'm going to have him on my podcast soon. And he was a consultant and I was a registrar. And, you know, I think we both had this period of not connecting and not really kind of really realizing what each of us had gone through through that period. And there was some common ground there. And he had started a podcast with his wife called The New Normal Podcast. And then He's since uh, launched the really successful Mastering Intensive Care podcast. So I called him up and I was like, right, what do I need to know? How do I start a podcast? And uh, yeah, so that was it. And as I think I've said, I've made so many mistakes in that time, but it's, it's been fantastic. I think just that I think the highlights have been bringing together a community of colleagues, you know, both. Inside medicine, outside medicine, and I think at least you'll appreciate this. It's building a community and you learn so much. And I think I'm just always blown away by how generous people are with their time.
0: You've had some really amazing guests on for sure. I'm very inspired. I listened to your recent episode Mm. with, oh, I'm going to forget his last name. I know his first name is George from Charlie's in WA, which is where I'm currently working. Not at Charlie's, but in WA. I found that very topical, very interesting conversation.
1: Yeah. And I think we should talk about that work if we get time, because I think, you know, himself and Katie and Robbie are, you know, it's great work. It's a template for excellence. Um, We need to replicate that.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, Do you do all of the aspects of the podcast? Do you do the editing and the artwork and the show notes and everything? Or do you have a team behind your podcast?
1: Yeah, I I wish I did. (laughs) I don't have a team. Um, No. And you know, it's something I'm now starting to think about because I've found that you know a lot of podcasts. And and again, I presume there's a team now behind CCIM. I know you have Pete. Um, do you do any of the editing?
0: I have not. No, I I feel as though I should do one just to know what happens. Pete has offered to to show me that, but I have yeah. not done any of it to this point. So. I just sit here and record a nice conversation and then magic happens and it comes back in my inbox as yeah. a beautiful polished episode, which is quite quite a nice experience.
1: And yeah, I think that's the thing I've found. Um, I don't particularly love editing. I love re-listening to the conversations, but it is often a creative edit. I, I think I'm going to struggle with having someone else and not taking ownership of the conversation and you know it's invariably it's my audio that I'm most critical of and the ums and the ums and the you know that when you maybe don't feel like you've asked a coherent question because it's really it's a practice and finding your voice I've found challenging but I just love it when you get these little insights and You you just bring out gold in in amazing guests. I think uh, my colleague, Andrea, who I've just recorded with in San Diego, she's a podcaster as well and an emergency physician, And, you know, she calls it these moments of distilled wisdom that you're co-creating. And I thought that was really lovely, a way to describe it. But no, it's definitely something that's on my radar because I don't put the podcast out regularly. I have been up at all hours of the day and night. I have spent all day on an edit. And even then, I have so much more to learn in that area. So probably not enough time to get really good at it. Yeah.
0: Well, it's impressive you've done as much as you have done so far without a team behind it even if it's not coming out regularly. Do you ever re-record questions? Do you think I could have asked that better and you re-record it and sneak it into the audio?
1: Definitely. I'm going to shamelessly admit that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's invariably me. It's never the guests. Occasionally, you know, I actually like it when a guest will say, can we re-record that? I want to see it, you know, and, and really reflect the information I'm trying to get across. And I, I think that's quite nice. But yeah, you know, unashamedly. I have done that. Well, I'm trying to get better.
0: No, if it it makes you feel any better, when I interviewed Dr. Carl for this podcast, he paused and got me to start again so that he could reword what he was saying. So if he's doing it, then it's fine. We're all doing it.
1: I think the last conversation I had with Andrea, we have a regular Zoom connection. I, I just think peer and peer mentorship support is so powerful. I've really relied on that through my career. And we recorded, we thought we'd record one of the conversations, and when we stopped recording, we had another conversation and I was like, this is the raw uncut version we really should have put on the podcast. We polished it too much. And so I think my mission for next year, if we do a few of these is to try and be more raw and real.
0: I love that. That's I definitely have a bit of a like podcast face, same with like, a phone voice sort of thing that the second it stops recording, I feel like I'm more candid and natural. I'm getting better with experience, but. It's definitely not the same me that comes onto the podcast. So important. And you've
1: avoided Podfeed. Somebody told me (laughs) Podfeed.
0: I think that's all testament to having a team behind the podcast. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning of when you first got into medicine. What drew you to medicine? Do you remember what age you were when you started to think about medicine as a career?
1: Yeah, so I had to think about this question. You can only join the dots in retrospect. I I do remember going to a careers fair, so I didn't have anyone medical in my family. I think my two nanas, one was an auxiliary nurse, one was a cleaner in the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow, and she remembers the days of matron when she was down on her hands and knees having to scrub the corners uh, of the floor. And I kind of went to this career fair. I really was interested in music and drama. I wanted to dance in the theatre and, you know, be a dancer in Cats, And I went along and I came back with a few brochures on teaching and nursing and I kind of brought them to my parents. So I definitely think I was thinking something vocational to teachers, a biology teacher and a Latin teacher suggested that maybe I do medicine. I think my parents were a bit reluctant. They thought it would be a bit stressful. I think my dad wanted me to be an accountant. And I think that's very ironic, given that he's my phone a friend at the moment in business school. Um, and so it kind of evolved from there um, and so at that point I became yeah quite invested in, in applying so probably it chose me.
0: Is your dad an accountant? Yes. <laughs> yeah so is my dad, he also didn't want me to do medicine but here we are. Um, now when you actually were studying medicine in your years as a junior doctor did you enjoy medicine? Did you have an inkling that you were going to go into emergency from early days? Or do you remember when that came about?
1: Yeah. So I think I, I was part of the second year of the problem-based learning in Glasgow University. And it was still quite a new program. And they'd probably, you know, taken away too much of the anatomy and the lectures. And, you know, a lot of the professors had nothing to do. And it was, I think it it was iterating through that period. So it was quite interesting. And, um I did remember having three part-time jobs in uh, third year, and hardly being at med school. I, as soon as I was sixteen, I was yeah, I was out trying to to work. So I'd had quite a few jobs, um, and I think maybe that's interesting. And I found so I did an intercalated degree in sports medicine, and I actually found that the, the most valuable and interesting part of my medical school training. And I think if, you know, sports or lifestyle medicine had been, there'd been an opportunity to train in that, that's probably where I would have gone. I really liked trauma. I think all my special study modules I chose were either orthopedics or musculoskeletal medicine or trauma. And so, you know, I think I did think about orthopedic surgery. I didn't have any good role models, really. Um, you know, I think laterally I, I picked an intern job in orthopedics and an SHO job. And so I always felt, you know, I think it was, I felt at home in the emergency department, even as a med student, you know, when you could turn up at four in the afternoon and stay till midnight and get to do things. And I think that's it was the ability to feel part of a team and, and do things, whereas I think on board rounds, and I think that's not an uncommon experience. I, I always felt like I was the student trying to get the attention of the patient and say hello when everybody was just kind of talking into the notes. So, you know, I, I think the emergency environment was attractive because of that.
0: Cool. and then when did you actually come over to Australia at what point along the way did you decide to jump ship and come over here did you come for a gap year or did you come planning to move permanently
1: yeah it's a good question I've been a bit obsessed with Australia since I've been very young so my mom's sister moved here when I was young my cousins were all born in Melbourne and we came when I was nine years of age and I have Really vivid memories of coming and really loving it. And I think I was always determined I'd go back. So I went as a student to visit friends who were doing their gap year. And so my aunt went to Sydney. Um, we, we stayed in uh, just round from Martin Place in Sydney, opposite Tiffany's. And we were in this like little flat full of cockro- cockroaches. <laughs> I remember it. They were working in a restaurant in the rocks. And so I think. I was pretty determined I was going to come back at some point. So I did my intern, or it would be JHO in Old Money, a junior house officer years in Glasgow. And then I did six months as an emergency role, accident emergency, they called it then, in Glasgow and applied to come. And I think I was just determined. And I was only coming for a year. And my best friend was getting married when I came back. I had all the reasons to come back. I I'm going to try and keep this brief, but I went online to get the job. And um, I uh, it was in the days when they were there was this occupational trainee visa for areas of need. So I ended up getting a job in Gosford, which would have been beautiful, in Terrigal Beach. And I hadn't really thought it through. It turned out when I arrived there that the job would have been in, mostly in Terrigal. And I think they just ran out of accommodation and I didn't have a car. And it was forty minutes away, and I hadn't really thought about it. And I remember um, calling my mom, and she was like, "Just come home." <laughs> and um, I uh, got on the int- uh, so I got on the internet again, and Ron from Quantum Recruitment was my savior. He was like, "Get back to Sydney, send me your CV, get to Melbourne." And so I got to Melbourne, and one of my great friends who was is Chinese born Australian then grew can't think it came to Australia when he was 12 and then studied Glasgow medicine had gone back for his intern year and he said Cheryl you know come and stay with me so I had interviews for Austin Anglis and Marinda I think within 24 hours I went to see Dr. Fergus Kerr who was director at the Austin at that time got the job and then we figured out I was on the wrong visa so I didn't even have a medical practitioner visa so I had a mattress and a pair of plastic drawers in in Ben's flat, waiting four weeks with no money till I got, was able to work and had a great year. And I for the second six months, my friend, uh, who's now an oncologist back in Glasgow, came out and we lived together and she worked at the Anglis. Um, it was really, really good. And I went back for a year, uh, no, two years. I even bought a house. To settle, Um, I did some more ED. I joined an anaesthetic training program, and the whole time I would say, Well, you know, in Australia, um, I sat my ED exams, and I think everyone just said, You know, go back to Australia. And I think it was opportune because it was the time of the MMC and modernizing medical careers, which really disrupted a lot of that generation of doctors in the UK. And we were described as the lost tribe. So, I remember going for a, an interview in Edinburgh, and swear to goodness, there was three times on the interview on the radio common work in Australia, and so I went for this terrible interview, didn't want the job, and I got back in Ferguson emailed and said, "Well, you've been away for you know nearly two years, are you going to come back?" And so that was the point I came back. And um, I did finish my part one ED UK exams and then started training for ASOM.
0: Did any of that transfer when you came to Australia?
1: Uh, very little no um, but I think the thing and I think maybe that's the the kind of message the thing that attracted me to that program was the inherent flexibility and the the ability to tailor your own training program and I think that's been something that's been important through you know m- much of my journey I think autonomy creativity Service and contribution and lifelong learning. And I think if I had values, those would be the, I do have values, but those would be, you know, my kind of rules and anchors to live by.
0: Yeah, I definitely think ED is one of the more flexible, even with just the time constraints to complete the training and all of that. It's definitely one of the more flexible ones, even before all of the work that you've done in the last few years. Uh, I want to hear a bit about the work that you do in the well-being space with ASIM, how that came about and what you actually do in that role.
1: So I think a lot of this work has been in evolution for several years now. And, you know, I, I mean, I think living experience probably can be a spark for anything. And just about the end of my fellowship training, and I mean, I've spoken about this before, I kind of limped towards the end, which was really disappointing for me, having been one of the more enthusiastic people in the room. And you know I really I couldn't face just doing full-time consultant role and people thought I was crazy at the time and said no no you have to do this and I really wanted to get off what I felt was a treadmill I'm a trail runner as you know Um, I like to to go off and you know off piste and so I'm pretty sure I had you know a decent period of burnout at that point um you know i I now know I can look to my right or left um, amongst my colleagues, and you know people will be there. it might look different, um but people will have an experience of this and I think you know i i so I did a couple of things um I did do locum work uh, around the country. I have always wanted to do my yoga teacher training, so I did that, and that was really wonderful. um I did some sports medicine as well. Um, thought about dual training and actually sat some exams and and thought about that as well. But I think that would have been another four-year, very expensive exercise. I even moved to Sydney at one point. So there's quite a lot of different things I did through a a three or four-year period. And I'd started to present on the kind of Physician Heal Thyself um, at a few non-mainstream conferences. And, you know, I think it's really encouraging to me that this is now strategic priorities in organizations and up front and center at most of the major medical conferences. And I stumbled upon the work of Professor Tate Shanafelt, one of the haematologists oncologists who'd been doing 20 years of kind of evidence-based work over at Mayo Clinic and then at Stanford. So I was really following that and I did their director's course and then I applied to go over to Stanford to do their WellMD. And, you know, I think at that point, there'd only been uh, Dr. Bethany Richards, who's coming to the conference, which is great. And now, you know, we have 12 alumni. And so that's kind of grown. ASIM, you know, I I remember just at the time when I was probably at my lowest professionally um, in 2013, you know, had appointed Andrea Johnson for Head of People and Culture, and we had a whole day of our ASM that year. I was there in Melbourne. I think it was 2014, devoted to well-being, and it was very much individual-focused at that point—positive psychology, mindfulness. Not really thinking about system and cultural culture, and and you know the the wider issues. Um, and so I think I was really attracted to the work that they'd been doing in the US because it was exactly looking at this. And you know, I'm really pleased with the the way ASEM have approached this because they know this is really important. <laughs> you know, there I think we're all there post pandemic, but I think this has been particularly rates of burnout um, and attrition in emergency positions and sustainability practice have been issues for a longer time. And you know, I think all of us know that's accelerated through a pandemic. So I was a wellbeing champion for a number of years, and now this last year they have formed a wellbeing executive, uh, which. You know, I'm really um, delighted to be able to chair. There's a team of rock stars on there. But I'm very conscious that this is all pro bono work. It's off the side of our desk. There's so much work to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think collectively we've now got a full complement. Um, we we have, yeah, we're, we're optimistic for what we can um, do this year. So definitely a work in progress. But the kind of work that I'm invested in, it's the things that keep me awake at night and I live and breathe.
0: Yeah, it's very promising to see those things come into play to be prioritised by the Mm. colleges as well. I think that's a big shift. Now, there's a lot of other things that you're currently doing. The other thing I want to ask you about is the MBA. What has actually drawn you into studying an MBA and why did you choose the course that you're doing? Which course are you doing?
1: So I think this feeds quite well into the wellbeing work. And I think I remember um, Tate saying, you know, this is organisational behavior it's leadership it's change management you know for something like a chief well-being officer role for example or a ceo who are you know going to encourage someone else to to do this work in their organization the well-being staff you know you can learn that on the job it's not this is more about you know working in the complex systems um and really understanding that and i just I was well aware that I needed a bigger toolbox, and I needed a different lens. And you know, I think if you you're going to engage everyone, and you know, these kind of roles that we're trying to establish, really, it's they're conduit roles, and they need collaboration across, you know, vertically, horizontally. And I think this, I've been thinking about it for a number of years, and so I started to do my research, and I I think. I mean, I, I think I picked for me uh, the ideal MBA program. So I'm doing the senior executive MBA at Melbourne Business School. So it is an older cohort and a senior. You know, people who've been working for you know 20 years plus. I. I'm just below the mean age for our cohort and I think the really attractive thing is we are very diverse and it's the kind of diversity I actually don't see in senior leadership roles um, of note and um, diverse across industry, profession, culture, you know, background and experience and I think being able to, the most powerful parts for me have been able to to the struggle of being able to try and articulate a problem you are having in your discipline and spending, you know, a couple of days trying to explain that to a group who are not familiar with your work environment and then come together and see people with very different lenses and perspectives, say, well, have you thought about this? And I haven't, you know, this works well in my um, domain. And I was like, ah, oh, that's quite interesting. And you kind of come up, and I think a lot of my projects have been modelled around the Royal Utopia Hospital. Um, you, and it's not a healthcare MBA, interestingly, but you really have the opportunity to make this your own. Um, and you come up with a lot of blueprints. And I think the other real advantage for me is you get access to an, an, you know, an automatic group and network of mentors. Um, and I think that that's the thing I'm most proud of. Our group have been very cohesive, so we're going to Europe for uh, in March for one of our international blocks, and I promise you, I was not the instigator. But we're doing a side trip uh, just before it to Paris to run in a trail event, which has like trail running, it has Nordic walking. There's going to be people supporting, and so I think that's been really lovely to have a group that we're going to do that before we we go and do our week intensive. Um, I think if I had a goal for our cohort, it would be. Yeah, we would support each other in rooms that we're not in
0: it sounds like the voice you found the right program for you
1: yeah I think so
0: I do I have questions about your your running I'm a runner myself I'm not a trail runner how did you actually get into trail running how have you done it your whole life and what sort of distances are we talking
1: yeah so I've been a runner since I was uh young um I think I've identified as a runner since I was an early teenager and you know, I did the school cross country and um, I did a couple of uh, road marathons when I was 18 for charity. It's just a charity I was involved with in at school. And, you know, my brother did a bit of running as well. And then I kind of settled into a routine of maybe doing a half marathon every six months, particularly through training, but I would run three times a week, nothing particularly serious. And I think just at that time after my fellowship, I finally thought, right, I'm going to get back into my running and signed up for Melbourne Marathon and I've always liked being Scottish. I've always liked hiking in monroe. And I found the group that I was training with for the Melbourne Marathon. Um, We came together and they suggested we did a, a trail run in the Mornington Peninsula, lovely part of Victoria. And we did the two bays trail run. I did the 28k at that point, and it's it's like such a fun event. You can, if you wear Bermuda shorts, you get to the front of the line. The aid stations are full of you know people dress up. It's just wonderful, and we all stayed in a big house. And I just this community of people, and I think you know I I think like a lot of us can narrow our interests through training. Um, and I think I realized that this was something that was really important to me, and it was a community of people that. I noted you know a lot of them were quite open just about struggles about just general life struggles and I felt very comfortable with a group uh, of trail runners and so it's kind of grown from there and it's a really great way to see beautiful parts of the country and of the world and so if I can combine a conference a trail run um, or some kind of locum with an event then I am very happy
0: amazing what's the longest event you've competed in or maybe you don't compete maybe you just run
1: (laughs) so I actually haven't done a hundred yet I run with people who run hundred mile events so they are all a bit nuts but (laughs) I I think it's the spectrum of nuttiness um there is a group up in Nusa when I lived there called the nutters so the Nusa ultra trail runners I love that uh I do you have aspirations at the end of this MBA program to do my 100k? Um, there is a brilliant race that's not run for a couple of years called the Great Ocean Walk. And um, I'm hoping that they get parks approval. Um, a couple of my friends who are race directors have just taken over that event. So that would be wonderful. I did an 83, so it was a 53 miler. How many K's in Scotland? Uh, just post pandemic, that was called the Highland Fling, and uh, that was one of my bucket list runs. It got cancelled through COVID, so it was great. I was a bit injured when I went for that right enough, but it was a sunny day—very rare sunny day in Glasgow—and I met a few people. I mean, this is the thing—you, you know, it's a running buffet, um, and you just chat and meet people. <laughs> I think I've met some of my best running friends during long races. So, good. Wow. I think uh, we've signed up for Wilson's Prom in april so I'll, I'll probably do the 50 then so that gives me something to to kind of aim for and i'm doing the echo trail in paris and that'll be a 30k i've not i've been banned from doing anything longer than that because we need to get a train to frankfurt to actually start our mba program
0: <laughs> amazing uh, i also i'm interested in the fact that you did your yoga teacher training How, yeah. i feel like you're already doing too many things but do you also teach yoga have you used that to teach yoga or do you just practice
1: Yeah, it's a good question again. And I stumbled on yoga when I was 18 and a stressed out medical student. And uh, I have loved it as a regular practice since then. I always thought about doing the training. It was always a kind of plan B. And I did do a program, a 350 hour over a year. And in terms of my own personal development, I think that was the most powerful part of that training program. Didn't really have time or didn't really think I would teach but I actually ended up doing quite a bit of teaching. Um, I did some corporate studios. I did some yoga teacher training for athletes. I actually linked with a physician in Singapore who's both Ayurvedic trained and uh, Western trained. And him and an orthopedic surgeon had combined it to, to do some courses in yoga therapy. And they were great. So I did a couple of them. Um, I did a yoga teacher training for athletes course with Sage Tree in the US who's a runner and, and yoga teacher and coach and so I did quite a bit and then didn't once I got back into clinical work and so I think I found it hard now so I have a regular daily practice but it's interesting I'm, I've been teaching yoga for tight and tired CEOs in the business school. So I'll bring all my blocks and my balls and my straps. I think they were all crying out for it when we were doing double maths at the end of last year. Or so um, so that'll be quite good. So I do like teaching. but
0: I love that tight and tired.
1: <laughs> and that is yoga for athletes. Yeah.
0: How have you managed to do all of these things? How do you juggle it all? Do you have any tips for time management or strategies or advice
1: at least I am single and I don't have children, so I think that's really important to to put out there. Um, and I know some amazing people who are not single and have children who are still doing much more, and I don't know how they do it. I don't work full time, and I think I I do at times probably overcommit. Don't we all? And um, particularly when there are things that you really enjoy and that that spark your interest and I think that is the kind of constant struggle where you put your energy time and attention and I really like so my Alice has been on the podcast she's a good friend and a runner and a sports physician and you know she always comes in my head saying if you say yes to this what are you saying no to and I think that's important that's a really good way to frame it so I'm going to keep doing the juggle. It's, and I think you'll have some sessions on that. I'm sure in creative careers and medicine, but there's so much inspiring work, but the work is never done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, it's a common theme on this podcast. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things, um, <laughs> a lot more than full-time work.
1: But I think the message also is that you Jan, Um And I think that's the important. And I just, again, for people who felt that they maybe don't have other options. And I think that's the power of your um, platform and all of the work that that Amadeep and Ash have founded you know it's having 21,000 clinicians on there tells you it's a space for people there's a lot of options and I see so much talent.
0: Um, Now we've talked about a few of your goals but what are your goals for the next few years I know we talked about one before you came on the podcast how you want to locum in every state before we actually hit record Um, any other big goals and how close are you to achieving that goal?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, immediate goals to to pass my MBA programme. Um, I actually think it will be one of my proudest achievements. Um I've really, really enjoyed it. And I don't know. I think maybe because you have to invest a lot of your own finances and time and energy and and you choose it. And at the look I've chosen other things, but I don't know. There's something different about this. I think I will yeah, I think it's been a kind of life highlight. So I have feel very lucky to be doing it. Um, 100k, I said, I think it would be nice to, to do that and to enjoy it. I do have, you know, a couple of longer term plans in terms of where this work and my MBA might take me. And, you know, it feels I don't really want to iterate those out loud at the moment or uh, speak those out loud. Um, because, you know, I'm not sure. There's a few things that I am kind of deliberating in the background. And, you know, one of those might involve some international travel. So, we will see, we will see. But I think those are good goals for this year if I can get through those.
0: Yeah, I think those are, that's enough goals, every day. <laughs> that's enough to work on. I don't know what else is going on in the back of your brain but that sounds like two pretty, <laughs> pretty big goals. Um, now, we ask this of every single person on the show but if you could do something completely different to what you're currently doing outside of medicine, outside of healthcare, in this alternate universe, money skill all of those things not an issue what would your dream alternate career be
1: well I think I I took you right back to being a dancer in cats on a musical I'd love to have uh, (laughs) to have done that but um, I might have had a short career Um, I actually I think you know I'm I'm really love complex systems and I, I just the more I kind of dig into how organisations work and, you know, organisational learning and behaviour. And I am really fascinated um, by that work. And, you know, that's not just in healthcare. That kind of is translatable. So I don't know, you know, a a career that would allow me to develop those skills.
0: Amazing. I feel like that already describes.
1: But watch the space, that might be achievable. So I might be on track.
0: Yeah, it describes a lot of what you're already doing. So I think so. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been amazing to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much for the
0: Hopefully we can check back in and see how you've gone with all of those things.
1: I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person.
0: Yeah, and look forward to seeing you at the CCIM conference.
1: No, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging.